Come, Holy Spirit. Come now as we consider your word for our lives. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. This is one thing we're trying to spread the word. Uh, I grew up thinking that Easter was a day. Later to come find out it's a season, an entire season long. It's really great to be with y'all today. Um, Today we're going to focus on the reading here from the gospel, John chapter 21. So if you have your Bibles with you, I brought mine right up here. I will not indict you for reading your Bible during the service. Now I'm not sure if Barry's checking the sports scores or, yep, there it is, the Bible. When I was in uh, my senior year of high school, I had an English class And my uh, teacher in the English class was trying to communicate to us the importance of understanding the merit of senses when you write a story. And so in the whole class, she had everybody in the class sit down without anything in their hands. She turned off the lights so that the lights were, you could still see one another, but we were more silhouetted than colorful. And in the midst of this classroom, she held a paper bag and walked from one student to the next student and said, close your eyes and smell. All I want you to do is close your eyes and smell and lock in your brain what's happening. And so I was sitting in the back of the classroom, no surprise, and as I'm watching or listening or seeing my other students, my other classmates respond, I hear visible gasps from every single person as they're, as they're going through, as this teacher's going through. And then she comes up to me, I close my eyes, she holds a bag up to my nose, and I inhale. And all of a sudden, I'm transported into my parents' bedroom, laying on my mom's side of the bed while she's smearing Vicks Vapor Rub on my chest. And I could remember the color of the bedspread. I could remember what the leaves looked like outside. I had this vivid, invisible memory brought on by olfaction, or as we talk about it more normally, because of the smell of Vicks Vapor Rub. There's something about smell that connects us to past events, both in good ways and in bad ways. When I was growing up, I really, really did not like my mom's cornbread casserole. Pause the sermon. My mom's actually here right now. Hey, mom, good to see you. And for whatever reason, I think I had some bad event when I was young, not because of her cooking, but because of me, because it's me back at the classroom. And whenever I would smell cornbread, I would always feel a little nauseous in my stomach. Contrary-wise, with the Vicks Vapor Rub, I had a positive experience when I smelled the Vicks. And there's a reason for this, because everything that we do in our life is part of us, good and bad. When we engage in good activities and we connect those activities to the world around us, we are cohered from our past to our present. In the gospel reading today, we read one of the resurrection accounts of Jesus. And this one is filled with symbolism, as you could probably detect from all of the contents of the story. All of the fishermen are back out doing their fishing work, though they are also fishing for people. 
And Jesus is standing on the seashore and gives them an old but familiar gift, fish and bread. What I want to draw your attention to for just one moment is the fire. While Jesus was standing and preparing this fire, this wasn't any normal fire. This fire is defined here in the scriptures as a charcoal fire. And I know what you're thinking. Who cares? What's the difference between a wood fire and a charcoal fire? Well, I know David Spake and Jim Roach can tell you exactly the temperature at which you got to cook your brisket under a charcoal fire and that the wood's not going to work. But how does that apply to John chapter 21? I'm glad you asked. The word charcoal only occurs in the New Testament twice. One time right here in John chapter 21, verse 9, and it occurs one other time in John chapter 18. Just give me a moment to read the story. If you're following along, I'm on John chapter 18. I'll begin at verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter was standing outside at the gate. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out, spoke to the woman who guarded the gate, and brought Peter in. In case you're not familiar with the story right now, Jesus has just been arrested after serving the Last Supper to the apostles, and he's right now being questioned by the high priest in the Sanhedrin while Peter and John stand outside in the gate. Now listen to what happens. The woman said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples. He said, I am not. Now listen, verse 18. Now the slaves and the police had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing around it and warming themselves. Peter also was standing with them and warming himself. This sounds like a strange non sequitur. It sounds like an unrelated event. But within the story of the scriptures, charcoal fires were not as popular back then as they are now. Does anybody know how to make charcoal? It's not an easy process. You have to burn and compress and burn and compress. And it's not a useful um, uh, uh, work of your time. It's much easier to just make a wood fire. But because this fire pit within the courtyard of the temple is always burning and always being gathered around people, they use charcoal to make it more effective and hotter. Now there's something unique about charcoal fires. They smell different than wood fires. When you, tech, when you have a charcoal fire, the very sense of the fire changes the atmosphere of the air around you. And so I think this is what's happening in John chapter 21 and John verse, chapter 18. That Jesus is setting up for Peter what is to be the story of his repentance and forgiveness for denying Jesus three times. And, and we'll We'll talk about this next week because this is what the story covers. That Jesus asks John in John chapter 21, asks Peter in John chapter 21, Do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. How many times does he do it? How many times did Peter deny Jesus? 
So there's this connection that we see that has to do with the mercy of God in relationship to our sin. So what I want to talk to y'all about within the light of this charcoal fire is this crucial concept about God's mercy, about God's justice, and how that all fits into a life of sin. Your sin is something that has infected you. And by the way, you didn't start the sin. Sin came around and started way before you were ever part of the picture. And so when you and I are introduced to the character of Jesus— when we are introduced to the concept of God, the righteous judge, we have a bit of a problem right from the get-go. God, who is sinless, desires to be in relationship with people who are sinful. And not because God is stuck up, but because God is God. God can't be in relationship with anything that denies himself. Just tracking with me so far. And so there's this transaction that takes place where Jesus pays for the sins of the world by his blood, by his death. It's only because of that transaction, which is prefigured in the law, in the sacrifice of the temple, that we have the capacity to have access to God's mercy. And I think most of us get that concept so far. But here's the thing I think we struggle with. Mercy can only exist if God is just. Let me unpack this for a sec. A lot of times when we're growing up, I'm having this issue with my children. I have four of them. My children don't know what it costs when they break things. My children don't get what it costs when they hurt something in my household. They've cost us hundreds of dollars of broken equipment, you know. And so whenever they break something, whenever they put something in disrepair, I have to be the one to pay for it. I have to be the one to correct the wrong. Now, I'm still in relationship with them. I'm still associated with them, though more begrudgingly by the day. But what's become, quickly becoming the case is I'm realizing that every single act that they do that's not advantageous to me comes at a cost. See, I don't put it to their account because I'm showing them mercy, but it still costs something. This is the concept of God's justice. Every single time you and I sin, there is a penalty for our sin. Paul says it succinctly in the book of Romans. For the wages of sin is death. And all of this circumnavigates around the singular conversation around how mercy operates. That unless we see clearly what the cost of sin is for us, what the ultimate wages of sin result in for us, then mercy means nothing. And let's just get our vocab straight. You guys know this one. What is justice? It's when you get what you deserve. What is mercy? It's when you don't get what you deserve. This is what makes the God of Christianity unique against all other religious practices. Because if God doesn't pay for the penalties of our sins, our God is not just. If God does not enact justice throughout the whole world, evenly, equally, no matter what, that is not a God of justice. Let's say it on the other side. If God only doles out mercy, but there's no cost for the mercy, God is by de definition unjust. So it's only within Christianity that we are able to see God himself, the righteous judge, 
who is enacting justice throughout the whole world and then paying the penalty for our uh, reconciliation with the blood of Jesus and therefore both being completely just and being completely merciful. Now, all of this has a purpose. I'm, I'm, I'm going a little bit too deep in atonement theology, and I apologize for that. What I want to talk about here is this bigger question about the sin. When you and I sin, it has a lasting effect on ourselves, on our communities, on the world around us. And so when we encounter God's mercy, where is the sin in relationship to us? Is it gone? Is it still there? What I want to submit to you in this conversation is that it's crucial that we understand that sin is ever present with us though we have been redeemed from it. And let me give you a couple examples of why I think this is important. Remember the story of the resurrection when Jesus appears to St. Thomas. Jesus, who has been resurrected, who has a redeemed form, he's clearly so beautiful and holy that people don't even recognize him. I think he's probably wearing a red cape with an S on his chest, prefiguring some symbols there. But what happens? He still wears what? The mark of his wounds. He still wears the cost of our redemption. Now, this is an important concept when it comes to sin for us, that we recognize, we understand, although we have been forgiven by God, that sin still drastically and deeply affects us today, even the sins that we've been forgiven of. Let me give an example of this. You guys heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. You guys have heard the process of recovery. When does an alcoholic need to forget about the fact that they're an alcoholic? Never. And is it because they're not forgiven? No. Is it because they're not redeemed? Of course not. It's because in order to live a life of holiness, we have to be aware of the way that we sinned in the past. So an alcoholic isn't going to go to bars at all. An alcoholic isn't going to stop by the liquor store and just not buy the alcoholic beverages. The alcoholic lives their life in light of the way that they had been and are redeemed. This is the same thing when it comes to sin. That our brokenness, the scars that we wear on our bodies, within our souls, because of sin, ought to be resounding, echoing memories of redemption. That our scars ultimately point to the hope that we have in resurrection. My son, Ambrose, loves this series of movies called Cars. Have you guys heard of these before? If you're into kids' movies, these are the movies to watch. The Cars movie series is three movies long. There's also a bunch of little movies. We won't talk about those. But by far the most important and colorful character in the entire story is a little tow truck named Mater. And Mater speaks with this, like, southern accent. You think they're southerners in Georgia. This guy's got an accent, right? Uh, the voiceover guy is Larry the Cable Guy, who's a comedian. And Mater is a rusted-out old truck who tows everybody around for free, who goes to every single person in place with equal love and joy. He has no um, uh, uh, guile, guile in him at all. And in the second movie, Mater, be Mater becomes a spy for the British Secret Service. Logical place for him to be. 
So there's this incredible moment when Mater receives, he's, he's in some you know, like beauty shop where they can make him a really polished, nice-looking truck. And someone says to him, Mater, you have a dent right there on the back part of your car. Jim, I don't know what you, the technical term for that part of the car is, but it's the back part. And Mater's, and, and they say, would you like me to buff out that scratch? And Mater says the most interesting thing. He says, no, I got that scratch when I was out in the field tipping cows with my friend Lightning McQueen. He goes, I got to keep those scratches and dents so I remember who I was with when I did them. Those are marks of my friendships. And I was so shocked when I heard this concept because it's so un-American, right? That for us, we know that we have friendships. We know that we are loved because we look good on the outside. (laughs) Contrary to that is the message of the gospel, that we know exactly how much Christ loves us, not because of how beautiful he is, but how marred he is. We know exactly how much Christ loves Peter because he can smell the charcoal still. And he's been forgiven even for that wickedness. This is my call to us today. While we go through this process of living into our resurrected identities, walking on the other side of Lent into a new Easter way, let's consider our sins not as marks of shame that we have to hide from the world, but as marks of redemption by which we change the world. Some of y'all know uh, the most difficult thing that's happened for me in my life is I got divorced years ago. And that was, when I was going through it, the most awful, traumatic thing in the world. And when I still look back on it, I still wear those scars with shame and sadness and pain. And oh my God, am I so happy that happened. Because I got new babies and redeemed love. And I wouldn't know any of you unless I was stuck here because of the conditions of my divorce. See, God is constantly resurrecting in us redemption out of our brokenness. And so when you look at your scars, when you look at your trauma, when you look at all the things about you that are broken, these are only opportunities for God to redeem the world around you because of you. Amen.